0: People are have really been um, going through kind of a slow death in their work. Um, their productivity has been questioned as we, you know, we're working from home. And I really began to question what's the best way to build trust and to really what's an opportunity to maybe have a very new metric of productivity because we're not in an industrial age anymore. You know, all of the old productivity metrics were. Based on these assumptions that we were kind of cogs in the wheel, our time could be clocked. My very first job in the eighties was at a local Roy Rogers in our community, and I remember at age fifteen, loving the sound of that click clank sound. Like, <laughs> right? and, but that was the time, you know. And, and but that doesn't really make sense anymore.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, president here at Premier Speakers Bureau. I'm excited to have with us today, Natalie Nixon. Natalie is a creative strategist and uh, the creativity whisperer for the C-suite. She's the author of the award-winning book, The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at Work. Uh, she's been ranked among the top 50 keynote speakers in the world by real leaders and is valued for as accessible expertise on creativity, the future of work, which I think is really important right now and innovation. Uh, she's the president of Figure Eight Thinking, and she advises leaders on transformation, uh, having worked um, with companies like Comcast, Deloitte, Salesforce, and being in Forbes, Fast Company, and Inc. So Natalie, thank you much, uh, so much for joining us today.
0: Hi, Brian, thanks so much for having me.
1: So I'm curious, how did you get into curiosity? To so not be too silly, but I love, I love being curious because we have so much that focuses on like, I guess, hard, hard things. And curiosity, I think, is a hard thing that seems easy.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's on the surface very easy, but it's actually something that I don't see enough organizations or companies baking into their culture. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that many of us have been questioned, shamed at some point doing our learning experiences or rolling on in our in our careers where we, we dare to raise our hand, ask a question and either Uh, The reception was giggles, laughter, even worse, we were ignored. Also, most of us did not have an educational experience where we were really encouraged to trust the process, to engage in process and to engage multiple possible outcomes versus an error on the side of certainty, fill in the dots, what's the right answer. And so what that's resulted in is a lack of curiosity, in my view. And I'm a big fan of the work of people like Warren Berger, who wrote a great book called A More Beautiful Question and The Book of Beautiful Questions. Warren's perspective, and I agree with him, is that we actually should teach how to ask questions. And in a corporate perspective, he also has a great um, idea, which I am an advocate for, which is that instead of companies having a mission statement, they should have a mission question. One of the things that questions do is, A, they open us up to multiple uh, possibilities. They help us to imagine. And as we're all trying to innovate, you actually can't innovate unless you, as I've said, written in my book, the creativity leap, unless you ask a better frigging question. (laughs) (laughs) And if you surround yourself with people of the same trainings, with the same sorts of schools, same backgrounds, you all tend to ask the same sorts of questions and that really won't um, lead to innovation.
1: So, well, I love asking questions. I mean, like that was one of the things that I wanted to do just because I'm I'm curious myself. So I, I love your line of thinking because that's the reason why I do this. Like I don't like boring. And so for me, the best way to learn is to ask other people questions because everyone knows something more than you do. Uh, yes. How does someone ask a better question?
0: Well, I think it's important to first understand that there what, there is what I call a taxonomy of questions. Not all questions are created equally. So there's what I call divergent questions, and divergent questions help us to get bigger and more expansive and larger in our thinking. So questions like why, what if, I wonder, there's literally nothing bad that follows the words, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if I want you know, fill in the blank, right? And also, if you just pay attention to how you feel when you get to ask, what if, I wonder, you literally have a lightness in your body physically. And another big idea that I'm a proponent of is that the future of work will require much more embodied leadership, leaders that are connected to how they feel and to how the people whom they're working are feeling as well. The other category of questions are convergent questions, questions that get, help us get much more tactical and narrow in and focus. And those sorts of questions are questions like what and who. And when and where? And in my experience with a lot of clients with whom I first initially start working, they only ask those conversion questions. They're really only interested in getting very tactical. But here's the thing: if you don't start big and you don't start by asking those big divergent questions, you're always going to have to edit down because of limitations and constraints on budget, on time, on people, talent. So start really big with those big, ginormous, juicy questions, and then get really tactical. And the third category of questions are what I call hybrid questions. So a question like how can be both a very divergent question. It can make you think really expansively about how, but how is also getting really tactical as well. So those are the that's how you get better at asking questions. Also practice much so let me finish that thought. You get better asking questions by understanding that not all questions are created equally. You also get better asking questions by being by being more reflective and and and, and experiencing more self-inquiry. It's a lot harder to expect that of your colleagues and um and people report to you. If you do yourself, don't practice self-inquiry and you're not transparent about that on the job in terms of how your neural is starting to rethink things. You're reframing things in your mind. Because what you should not do is to stand in front of your team and say, okay guys, give me your your best questions, you'll probably be met with deer in the headlights stares or arms crossed or hands on the hips because people have been question shamed and because you haven't modeled it, right? So if you're modeling it, you're 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 setting the the table for for deeper curiosity.
1: I'm interested to know you were talking about people from different backgrounds have different types of questions. So kind of earlier on when you were talking about that, um, is it just I mean, there are a lot of different ways. I know we talk about diversity and and getting people from different areas and different ideas. Can you uh, maybe talk into that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, so I'm talking about cognitive diversity, I'm talking about experiential diversity, mm-hmm. and, and definitely diversity in terms of backgrounds and gender and ethnicity. All, absolutely all of those are inputs into our identity that help us to have a very different lens and perspective. So, one of the ways in our organizations and our teams, we can practice getting different sorts of questions developed around the table is to practice something called creative abrasion. And creative abrasion is a term that Jerry Hirschberg made up. Jerry Hirschberg used to be the head of design at Nissan, the automotive company. And when he and his designers had a big, hairy, audacious problem, Dig into, he wouldn't stop at only having designers at the table. He would invite people from finance and HR and manufacturing and sales and marketing. He understood that most of us despise collaboration because most people, if they're really honest, they will say, Why do we have to invite these other people and they don't understand what we do? You know, we've been doing this so long, we know how we work, right? It will just slow down the process. Yeah, it might slow it down short term. The longer term, when you are forced and compelled to explain the jargon that you yourself might admit doesn't even make sense anymore. You know, why do we call it XYZ of the ABC, right? If you're forced to really explain that, you actually shine a light on something that you've been staring at. Also, when you collaborate and you're the newer people on, on, on the process, it helps you to form and frame new and different sorts of questions. I like to say that questions are inputs into a system. And that system could be what's for dinner, uh, what's the next marketing strategy we should be developing, what's the better financial model. And if you keep asking the same questions, you're gonna get the same output, right? But if you ask new questions, new inputs, you have a new output. And that is essential for any creative endeavor and for building your own creative capacity and the creative capacity of your organization.
1: I, I think earlier you'd also mentioned the future of work. You know, how will these? You know, you know what it, to you? What does the future of look, look work look like? As we've always had some crazy changes over the past few years, and then um, how can you apply these these uh, principles to take advantage of the future of work?
0: I like anyway. I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I'm operating under two assumptions. My first assumption is that. WTF? sorts of situations are going to continue. Uh, we're going to have more sort of disruptive uh, situations happen in our in our world in, nat- in the natural environment. Um, the other assumption that I'm operating under is that algorithmic science is going to improve, and it's going to become more normalized, right? So our access to AI and robotics and AR and automation is going to become even more saturated into our daily lives. So if, if we're operating under those two assumptions, that tech is gonna be even more ubiquitous and more ordinary in our lives, and, and disruption is going to continue, your creative capacity is what you can control. So the, the 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 more, I don't have a dystopian view of the future of work, and I don't have a utopian view. I have what my friend Galit Ariel calls a heterotopian view. It's gonna be a lot of casualties that happen. this fourth industrial revolution as a lot of basic tasks and jobs are taken over by tech the great news however is that if you're a leader an organization that chooses to design work in a way where you allow for more room for the human to show up then that's amazing you'll be able to attract and retain the best talent or where people increasingly have a lot of options especially in what I think, I think what we now call hybrid work will become very normalized or long to be called hybrid work. That that's just the way we will work. Um and I also think there's a lot of opportunity for more opportunity for us to flourish if we if we go about this in a much more intentional way. My next book is going to be about flourishing and doing that through what I call invisible work. And um sometimes when I when I say invisible work, the first thing people think of is what feminists have, have thought of as invisible work, which is that the work that a gendered perspective of invisible work so it's the work that women do that's unpaid that doesn't get accounted for when i talk about invisible work what i mean is that 80 percent of our most productive selves is not done on the zoom call it's not done at the whiteboard it's not trackable it's the work and synthesis that happens in our brain when we're going for a walk when we're daydreaming when we're doodling when we are recounting Um, a conversation with a family member or a colleague when we are being mentored or mentoring. And that's actually when there's very different neural synapses that are at work in our brain that help for that synthesis of those juicy ideas where real work gets done. So to flourish is really increasingly going to mean that you can expand in your life and work on your own terms in a way that actually allows for more of the human to show up.
1: Yeah. I like that. I mean, just because, I mean, just like me, like listening to podcasts in the car or something like that. I mean, that's exactly. not, that's not time here. And then I'd be like, you, of course you could do these. What if, like, I'm trying to think what if as we're talking, I'm like, what if you put showers in offices and people are just, cause that's where all the best ideas, hey, come. that's you amazing. know, you're there we go. You it. can share that with Comcast and Salesforce and they'll, you know, I'll <laughs> work out. I like that. <laughs> um, so um, what made you choose? I know we, we've talked a little bit about your former book. What made you choose this new one that you're working on? And uh to as as you've seen, like when did you come up with the idea? Is it within the last two years you're saying, oh, this is what the world looks like now? Or and what prompted you to start?
0: So my 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 the very first book I had published is a book called on design thinking. It's a book I edited. My latest book, The Creativity Leap Unleashed Curiosity, Improvisation and Intuition at Work, came out in twenty twenty at the very start of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And uh, one of the ideas I put out in the Creativity Leap was this idea that creativity is our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And my goal in that book was to really have people understand that creativity is not a nice to have, it's a must have. One of the things that has really risen in my view and garnered a lot of my attention um, is that people are have really been um, going through kind of a slow death in their work. Um, Their productivity has been questioned as we, you know, we're working from home. And I really began to question what's the best way to build trust and to really, what's an opportunity to maybe have a very new metric of productivity? Because we're not in an industrial age anymore. You know, all of the old productivity metrics were based on these assumptions that we were kind of cogs in the wheel, our time could be caught. I mean, my very first job in the 80s was at a local Roy Rogers in our community. And I remember at age 15, loving the sound of that clanks like, <laughs> right? down. But that was the time, you know, and, and but that doesn't really make sense anymore. So what does make sense? And that's what I started to ask myself. And I started to wonder about that. So that's really what were the seeds that plant that were planted for that book. And I have an article that came out in Fast Company about this idea of invisible work. And I'll share it with you, Brian, if you want to post it for listeners. Yeah, yeah. But the the um that's really what has been the seed of my thinking about what's it gonna take for us to flourish in a time where tech can do basic tasks, right? What's the kind of work that we want to design for ourselves and our colleagues? And there's a lot of cool opportunity. Uh, So uh, this book will bring in a bit more of the wonder, but bring in a lot more of the neuroscience of creativity and a lot of interesting stories from people who are flourishing in some cool ways.
1: I'm curious. So uh, let's say you're a leader who wants to implement this, but you still have bean counters who want that that are the time clock people. So you you want to measure this invisible work. You've got time. You've got the the bean counters where do you find that middle ground? If you're a leader who wants to make sure you don't totally leave out the people from the past, but look towards the future, how do you measure success in in this way?
0: Well, one of the, I think well we have to do very different, we have to explore very different and new types of metrics. And I'm still developing some of those ideas. But for example, you know, what if we incentivized very different things? So Um, You know, what if we not only, our incentivization plans are not only based on outcomes, but we're also based on the process that people used, right? So we're looking, we're we're paying attention much more to um, the how, right? The process that people are using to innovate, to produce. Um, We're interested a lot more in building trust. We are going to, I'm predicting, make high touch moments premium because we will have the opportunity to not be uh face to face in real time, flesh to flesh a lot more. Um, I'm very interested to see the ways and experiment, well, experiment of ways that people will use play and intuition and really level up intuition. If you notice, if you listen closely to the origin stories of really successful business leaders, to a person, they will reference Something as follows: Something told me not to do the deal, or something told me to work with her and not him, even though her pedigree wasn't as snuffy. And you know, and and I and I started listening to those sorts of origin stories when I was a professor. I created an executive MBA program that integrated design thinking into it. And we would work with a lot of startup leaders. So I what is that something? I think it's intuition. We don't talk about intuition in medical school, law school, or business school, and yet consistently. It is an attribute of the way people make strategic choices. So, intuition, play, um, really leveling up, um, new metrics of of how we interact. Play. Let uh, me just say one more thing about play. Um, all of the things that are required to play well, including how to lose, is another good good um, part of, of playing. I'm from Philly, and Philly's just <laughs> locks sorry to say, but you know, with the World Cup going right now, you know, I know that you're really engaging your community with that. And, um, you know, play really levels up executive leadership skills like actively listening, negotiation, collaboration, uh, refra- reframing, anticipating what's next and losing, right? So um, those are the sorts of things I think it's going to be really important for us to pay more attention to.
1: For you personally, because I'm always interested in people personally, Where do you find the most joy in doing what you do or the most wonder in doing what you do with innovation, creativity, imagination?
0: Well, two places. Um, I love listening and observing people, listening to and observing people. I have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion and both of those fields have have equipped me with the ability to um, pay attention
1: I noticed the fashion thing right off. I'm like, she looks so much cooler than I do, but go ahead. (laughs) For those who are listening, you just have to watch the video. But I I like looking at the glasses. I'm like, this is, yeah, she's definitely into fashion. All right, go ahead. Sorry, Sarah, I interrupt you there. You're a little tough.
0: that's a compliment. Thank you, thank you. But fashion, people don't work in fashion. They either think it's glamorous or frivolous, and it's neither. What fashion is really good is, it helps develop a financial acumen, appreciation of logistics and tech, but also appreciates you for the role of beauty and desire and aesthetics. And how we um, do business, and so I bring all that in, and that really helps to to spark my creativity. All those things that I have developed in my background. But the other thing that um, where I find that sparks my creativity is, I am a clumsy student of ballroom dance. I actually just participated in a ballroom showroom yesterday. I posted on Instagram, and um, you know, whatever is your jam—if it's auto mechanics, or gardening, or cooking, or or coding—I don't know. really dig into not being the smartest person in the room for needing to learn how to ask new and different questions to bring it full circle to how we started our conversation, Brian, and to be more improvisational and, and to act on in your intuition, what I call the three eyes: inquiry, improv, and intuition. That for me, totally exercises my brain in a different way. And it helps me to be more improvisational, curious, and intuitive in my own work.
1: Well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, If For those who are listening, watching, uh, make sure to go to premierespeakers.com and and, uh, look up Natalie Nixon there in case you need her as a ballroom dance instructor at your next event or uh, to talk about creativity, innovation, um, imagination, intuition, and so many of those things that she's talked about here. So, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us and being a guest on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Brian.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, visit Premierspeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.